I'm Jeff Cohen. Aaron London had a dream to serve in the U.S. military. Little did he know that he'd be serving Hashem. Aaron is here today to share his story from an agnostic to a fully observant Jew. Aaron, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much. Good to be here with you. So we appreciate you taking the time, and I imagine over the course of this interview, we'll get into the military stuff, as well as your journey to Jewish observance. But let's start at the beginning and give our listeners a sense of where you were born and raised. Sure, sure. So actually grew up um, one of two siblings. I have a younger sister and grew up in a small town in Bergen County, New Jersey called Norwood and went to public school. We did have sort of a basic Jewish education. My, I don't really even think we were conservative, but my parents sent us to a conservative synagogue Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday school, or Tuesday, Sunday school, whatever, you know. And interestingly enough, I I recall how um, when I was in Hebrew school, I had sort of this natural resonance with reading Hebrew. At that time, the farthest thing from my mind was, you know, Judaism in a serious way, but some of the signposts along the way, you know, sort of revealing that later on we would be, you know, sort of coming, coming back. What was your family doing within the home in terms of Judaism? I think my mother had more interest in our Jewish growth than my father did. And in fact, I get it. You know, we grew up basically in a secular world. We had like, you know, sort of growing up in the home, like occasionally Shabbat dinner. The blessing, though, is that I grew up next to my bubby and grandpa. And so we would do Shabbat there. And it happened to be that my father's sister became religious, her and her husband. And so there there were these times during the year when my Aunt Deborah and my Uncle Morris with their kids would come from South Carolina during the winter or the summer. I have very, very fond memories of family time and Shabbat dinner with them at Bubby's house. And that was really probably my first true exposure of like observance. It felt separate for me. I have a funny memory of uh, my cousin Benjamin. I guess I had left the bathroom and I turned off the light on Shabbos and he was like, no, gosh, no. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And I flipped it back on. He's like, no, no, don't, don't flip it back on. Yeah. But maybe, you know, thinking about it now, that was creating a certain sensitivity within me, a certain template that would be sort of tapped into later on. But at that time, like I mentioned, it did feel like that was them, and then there was my family, and we were like visitors. They had a whole thing during benching. They had this whole, you know, nigun, this whole tune that they would do, and they'd do these like hand gestures while they were doing it, and it was like fun and whatever. And, you know, if I, if I attempted to be a part of it, it still felt like I was outside of it, like I wasn't really, you know really a part of the whole thing. It's interesting how you're describing it because myself growing up in New City right next door to Muncie, when I would see Orthodox people, to me it was like a, a different religion. Like I really couldn't relate in any way. It might as well have been a different religion. You're having a different experience because it's it's being brought into your home at these couple times per year. And it almost sounds like you're having like a positive impression of it, but maybe not in a way like, oh, I could actually explore this and maybe this is something I would want to be doing. Like you're not ready for that. No way. Yeah. It didn't hit me in that way. I didn't see it as something that could be in my life. It wasn't actually until my my cousins, my Aunt Deborah and my Uncle Morris, they actually, it was the first time I went to Eretz Israel. They took me on their family trip to Israel and it was just me and I was with them. I do have a very clear memory of, they were explaining why we have two chalas. I was 14 at the time. And I remember I wanted to take that back with me at home. If we did Shabbat or we were going to do Shabbat, we are going to have the two challahs, not just one challah. And so there was the beginnings of maybe wanting to integrate some of what I was seeing. Despite my agnostic phase, there was always maybe a framework or a sensitivity or a proclivity towards wanting 
to have a relationship with Judaism. What were the conversations like within your family? You, you have a piece of your family that becomes religious. And I can say for myself, like when I became religious, but the rest of my family wasn't, there's like a tension there of the fact that not everyone is operating on the same Jewish level. Do you remember any conversations as a kid about the fact that part of your family, your extended family, became more religious than everybody else? When my aunt made the decision to become religious with her husband, I think my bubby had said to them, you know, your kids are going to want to be in Israel. You know, are you prepared for that? And, and <laughs> it was sort of a prophetic statement because, you know, my cousin Benjamin actually you know, ended up serving in the Israeli Defense Force for, you know, in a very elite unit. You know, I think my bubby, she went to great lengths to want to make sure that my aunt and uncle felt comfortable coming to her. So they had kosher appliances and things, separate dishes for when they came. And uh, so I don't, I don't recall any, you know, sort of major tension points there. I do remember the various tension points with my own family and my own, uh, you know, sort of extended family, those conversations and what I've learned along the way. You, so you mentioned going to Israel around the time you were 14. So had you recently had a bar mitzvah? And what was that like prior to going to Israel? I had a very classic secular bar mitzvah. I know that's like an oxymoron. It was uh, my attempt at wanting to invite popular kids and be cool and things like that. And so in order to accommodate my cousins, we actually had a, the kosher venue. I read uh, Mincha. I read the portion Mincha. The idea would be that the restaurant would open after Shabbos. And then there, there would be the party, you know, my... my Torah portion was Lethacha, which uh, thematically is, you know, I think very powerful for anyone who is on a journey and anyone who is seeking spirituality and uh, trying to uncover the depths of who they are. You know, of course, the famous concept of go, go unto or go into yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think throughout my own journey, that has been a message that has resonated as it's been a very important priority for me to develop self-awareness of who I am. Let's take us into the high school years now. Like you've had this trip to Israel and where are you at Jewish-wise and what are you thinking about you might want to do career-wise in college? What's on your mind at that point in your life? So it happened to be that there was a there was an organization called the, the Bergen County High School of Jewish Studies. And it was for those students who wanted to continue their Jewish journey after Bar Mitzvah in the, I guess, more secular uh, world is that, you know, once you get Bar Mitzvah, you know, that's it. You know, you, you've graduated your Judaism, you know. I remember there's a funny story of my father when the, my father got bar mitzvah and the rabbi said, you know, this is just the beginning. And I think my father said something like, you know, no, 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 rabbi, this is the end. <laughs> you know? So, you know, that, that, that sort of idea. But uh, I went uh, for like five years, actually. I, I did this sort of Sunday Jewish high school thing, and there were different classes, and, and they actually had from staff there. But, you know, oddly enough that experience didn't compel me forward Jewishly. It was like a social experience. There were some interesting classes. I didn't translate any of what I was sort of learning into what it would look like to have a religious life. I thought that if I would have any sort of relationship to Judaism, I'd be reformed. You know, that'd be it. No, that's nice. You know, go to, you know, reform synagogue, whatever. <laughs> so yeah. let's now go into college because I mentioned the possibility of military service. So did that play into where you went to college? The military, for me, represented this personality of courage and moral fiber and leadership and a sense of, like, slavlanut, of being able to, to carry and to bear and to be that leader who 
goes to bed later than everyone else and gets up earlier. That, that, that was all things that really spoke to me. You know, I would have like the Band of Brothers, you know, soundtrack, you know, in the background or Saving Private, you know, one of these things. And I began a lot of internet searching, different ways that it could be manifest. And uh, I learned about that there was something called West Point. I was like, wait, there's a school that has like the highest level education in America compared to the, the greatest schools and that you become an army officer. It was really awesome. And so I made my attempt at trying to get into, into West Point and I would go to, like <laughs> my mom and I would go to West Point, we'd go to the West Point Museum. As I got closer to that, you know, sort of college age, we went and actually did a whole sort of experience there. Like I followed a cadet in his classes um, and it was all really, you know, compelling. And then there was a guy in my high school that ended up getting into West Point. And I was like, oh, so jealous, you know. <laughs> and it's a very rigorous process. There's your physical fitness. There is your academics. There's your extracurriculars. I was trying to do these different things, you know. I was, like, trying to volunteer in the fire department. You had to get a congressional nomination or some type of nomination from a senator. There's even, I think, a vice president, even presidential nomination. You know, and you have different people competing for that. And I remember I sat in a room of, like, eight men i don't know if they're politicians former military personnel you know and they're interviewing me for this congressional nomination and uh i just i don't remember exactly what i said but i remember that it went well and uh and i actually was able to get that congressional nomination and uh, and and i remember in the portal in the west point portal there's like these checks you know the you get a green check and i remember i had, had all the checks but lo and behold just because you get the nomination doesn't mean it's a guarantee I was one of the people that got all that stuff, but didn't actually get in. But how'd you feel at the time? Must have been just devastating after all the effort you put in. Yeah, I, I probably was very disappointed. You know, okay, we have to figure something else out. I end up uh, applying to Rutgers, and I end up applying to Binghamton. You know, and my my interest at that time was becoming, you know, maybe a teacher. Ended up going to deciding going to Rutgers, and uh, what a fateful decision that was on on many many fronts. And you're part of the ROTC there? Yeah. So that's, at this point, I had no, um, I was not enrolled in any type of military, anything. I get to Rutgers, maybe it's a couple days in. I remember standing in front of the ROTC building for like 10 minutes. And I was like, there's no commitment signing up. Like, what if I just try this? What if I just try this, you know, and see how it goes, you know? And uh, I go in. I said, I want to explore what this might look like. And enrolled in the ROTC program my freshman year. Um, so you're doing basic training, you're going to school. And then also I would think, you know, college is when people get involved in dating and meeting new people. And so do you have thoughts on this as you're starting to open up your world to all these new people you never met before? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I in fact, I think basically every girl, they were all like not Jewish girls, uh, except for a couple. This was my freshman year. I was set up with this part Pakistani girl. She was like part Pakistani Irish and some she was like a mix. Uh, she said to me, we were at the College Ave dining hall on Rutgers campus. We were sitting there. She said to me, you know, I'm just letting you know there's not going to be a Jewish wedding. And I'm just letting you know, you know, that my grandfather will hate you because you're Jewish. Whoa. Now, now you could probably fathom that, you know, it could be most people would be like screaming or like, you know, okay, I'm done. But at this point I was so like not it wasn't any priority to me that I just sort of like accepted that it wasn't a deal breaker it was not a deal breaker 
and uh, you know, thank God that that relationship, for other reasons, just sort of disintegrated naturally. But I always remember that as like thinking back, like, oh my gosh, this woman literally said to me, "My grandfather will hate you because you're Jewish." <laughs> right, and, and that uh, should have been your ticket to get out of that relationship. And it should have ended right then and there. But you know, so I'm sure the neshama was screaming. But uh, it wasn't until I, I went to Israel that summer that uh, things began to shift for me dramatically. Right, so that's where I want to pause for just a moment, because I would think our listeners can sense that you're inching towards this major turning point. But from what you're telling us about you in college <laughs> at this moment, there's nothing indicating that something dramatic <laughs> yeah. is going to happen. But now you're saying you went to Israel and that there's this rabbi who's going to come into your life. So just help us yeah. understand the context of how something starts to shift for you. Yeah, this is a, a critical part of the story. Around January, I had decided that I wanted to go to basic training that summer. In between my freshman and sophomore year, there's a whole program that you can do with the National Guard. I was going to do that. I was supposed to go to Fort Benning, Georgia, infantry. And at this time, I, I developed this sore that requires surgery. And so I was actually disqualified from going to basic training that summer because of the surgery of this very seemingly minor thing. So, and I was like really upset about this. I was like, I can't believe this is happening, you know. There is an organization called Rutgers Jewish Experience, which is Rabbi Goldberg's organization, and he had different staff there. Uh, there was another rabbi, Rabbi Lewis, and it happened to be that Rabbi Lewis, he met with me. He just wanted to get coffee, and I was thinking, I was still skeptical of meeting rabbis at this time, and, you know, they had tried to get me to do Maimonides, their sort of intro Jewish education program and I went to one and I was like I was doing RDC I didn't have time I was like I can't do this so I didn't even do their like basic program so Robert Lewis meets with me and he said you know what are you doing this summer and I said well I was supposed to go to basic training he's like well how would you like to go to Israel like really you know <laughs> uh -huh. and he was referring to the mayor Israel program and uh, even though I didn't do my monolith which is oftentimes you know something you have to do to get onto these trips I was able to apply and uh, go on this on the trip, and I don't I don't think I really understood the scope of what the trip was. Like I don't think I understood that there was going to be like, okay, fine classes, but I didn't know I didn't I don't think I hopped with it what that meant really. So was it the hey I'm a college kid and they're giving me this free or very discounted trip that made you want to go? Like why that but not the class? I think I would have possibly done the class if if I maybe wasn't doing ROTC or I felt I had more time. You know, now that I my whole summer got cleared up, you know, I had some space to do something like this, and it was a highly, you know, subsidized program, and you know, you know, why not? So yeah, I think I think it was just the, sort of the confluence of those factors coming together, and Hashem sort of opening it up and uh, putting that opportunity on the table. What that experience would ultimately reveal to me was that uh, I, I really did care about my Judaism. I cared about being Jewish, and I began to care about my Judaism, even though I had all these sort of points along the way, sort of showing little insights into Judaism, I didn't see the relevance or the real presence it could have in my life until that trip. Which is interesting to me because I would think that when you're in Israel and you're removed from your everyday life, it can be very easy to get inspired and turned on forever long you're there. But then you come back to your life in New Jersey and college and like and your regular responsibilities and, and how do you take all the inspiration you had from there and bring it back with you. So I can hear clearly that something like opened up for you on this trip. Yeah. But then you come back, and how is Judaism playing into your life at that point after that trip? You know, in reflecting, you know, the, one's, one's journey in spirituality is a very, very human process. It's not black and white. It's not all or nothing. 
there are ebbs and flows. There are days, uh, there are good days, and there are certainly days where you're just like, I, I can't even fathom doing this. And, um, you know, on the trip itself, I never thought of, you know, religion in terms of truth. Like, you do your thing, I do my thing, and that was it. It really didn't cross my mind. Not until Rabbi Kellerman, Lawrence Kellerman Shear, <laughs> had his class on presentation on why we believe what we believe. And that, that was, you know, sort of, I was like, what? You mean like this stuff might be real and God might be, you know. So there was a lot of thought-provoking content on the program. And then going to Yad Vashem, and I remember this sort of scene very clearly in Yad Vashem. They had a documentary clip of like this bulldozer bulldozing dead bodies into this collection point. And then the scene cuts to these two Germans carrying this naked woman and just tossing her into a pile and I remember at that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to marry Jewish. I was like, too many people died for me not to marry Jewish. I just simply can't do that. That's immoral. And that was sort of the shift to marrying Jewish. And then commensurate with that, this sort of the content that I was receiving on the program, to the extent that by the end, like at the final banquet, I remember I had, I had my tzitzis on, you know. When I got back, of course, there's a massive dissonance between you know, sort of that inspiration point and like your life. And I remember I was going to be a martial arts teacher at a camp, and there was a, like, orientation. They had orientation in the city. So when I went to the city, I had my, you know, this is after now. I got back from Mayor. It was like some, I don't know, August or something. And uh, I had my tzitzis, but I was hungry, and there was Subway right there. You know. And I'm like, at least I had the sense to tuck my tzitzis in, and I, you know, I don't know, took my kiva off and uh, went into Subway and got a sandwich. So that was sort of this point where there was too much ore for the, for the current clea, you know. And I have various memories of feeling even like frustration or am I really going to change my life? Am I really going to do this? You know, it was overwhelming. That's a big deal because you have to make this decision like, am I going to say no to Subway for the rest of my life? If you eat there, you can say, I'm, I'm still learning, I'm still changing, I'm still growing. But then there are certain doors that you close about how you're going to eat and how you're going to dress and things like that. Oh, yeah. I mean... I have a funny story with the Culver Rebbe. They brought the Culver Rebbe to Rutgers. This is, a, this is like Gishmak story. So Rabbi Lewis is like, listen, when you go meet the Culver Rebbe, at this point I think I, you know, I was growing. I was growing slowly. I didn't really, you know, I, maybe I was putting on to fill in. Maybe I was wearing, sits, I don't I remember all the, the different things I was doing at that time. And uh, he's like, when you meet with the Culver Rebbe, he's going to make you promise to keep Shabbos. I'm just letting you know that, okay? So... I obviously take promises very seriously. You know, I'm not, okay, I'm not, I'm not ready to keep Shabbos fully, so I'm um, not going to promise. And it happened to be that that Shabbos, I was supposed to go with my friends to the city, to B'nai Dreshen, which is a sort of a famous conservative synagogue, and I was going to take a train back that night. You know, it was going to be great. So I meet with the Caleb Rebbe, and he's like asking me different questions. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Yes, I'm doing this. You know, are you keeping Shabbos? So I'm like, I'm working on it. And the Caleb Rebbe said, promise me you'll keep Shabbos. I said, Rebbe, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. Promise me you'll keep Shabbos. I'm working on it. <laughs> Promise me you'll keep Shabbos. Okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was like, I was like, what do I do now? <laughs> you know? And what did you do? So now I felt pulled because I had my obligations to my friends at B'nai Jeshurun. But now I, can't, I, I couldn't just... You can't pretend you didn't have that conversation. Yeah, I can't pretend I get, you know... And Rabbi Lewis didn't hear, he, you know, he was so nice, but he, you know, he, I don't think he had so, so much sympathy for me. He was like, I told you that he was going to do this. I was like, yeah, you're, you're right. You did, you did tell me that, you know. 
And uh, so now I had to come up with some type of convoluted plan to somehow observe Shabbos at the level that I could observe Shabbos while also keeping my commitment to my friends. And what happened was, so as I told Rabbi Goldberg my predicament, and so he put me in touch with Steve Eisenberg, and he and Steve made it all the connections happen for my experience in the city where I was going to somehow be able to go to B'nai B'jeshin and also, you know, keep Shabbos. And uh, it happened to be that my, my, I didn't put the connections at the time, but the host I was staying at was a guy that I had met on one of the mayor programs. He was a student at Machon Yaakov at that time. You know, I didn't put the connection together in my head, but when I got to the city now where I was going to stay, and I saw that it was, it was his apartment, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is great, you know. But what happened was I wrote down my host for dinner. I wrote his uh, business address down, not his home address down. Uh-oh. And uh, his business address was quite far away from where it was supposed to be, you know. And then I had to tell my host that, because it was like winter time, so the meal was starting early, but B'nai Dreshen was going to pray at like 6 or 7, and I, they knew I was going to come late because I was going to be, you know, praying with my friends at B'nai Dreshen, you know. And then my friends were on their, like, they were on their phones trying to help me find out where, like, the, the hosts, you know, where they really live. And, but they had moved, and so there was, like, not an accurate address. And I was, like, knocking on doors. And lo and behold, I ran into a family on the street, and they were like, oh, they live that way. And <laughs> we were able to find our way. But uh, that's my Kelver Rebbe, you know, Shabbos story. And what I'm hearing in your story is this, this building tension because you're learning more about the things you should be doing if you want to be an observant Jew. But you're also really straddling the secular world. Yeah. And I would think you start to feel more and more guilty as you realize things you probably shouldn't be doing now that you're more knowledgeable, but can you give them up? So how does how does that story progress to the point where you say, I really can't straddle these two worlds anymore. I'm going to have to pick one. Yeah. I get back from Israel that summer and I enter my sophomore year and it takes all of that first semester sophomore year, but I end up getting this ROTC scholarship, which is going to pay for my school and I have a, a job after college. And I literally signed this contract right before going on a next level Israel trip, you know, for students who are, you know, growth oriented. And, and this trip is called Mayor Vision. And so I'm, I'm newly excited because I'm going to be an army officer. You know, this was, the, this was really the dream. This was happening. And, you know, I'm going to, it's financially going to be fantastic in the sense that, you know, we're going to save all this money and I'm going to have a job and a monthly stipend, all sorts of cool things like that. And I, I ended up breaking out to being one of the top cadets in the in the program. I go on this trip to Israel, and I'm like really vibing with like everything about this program. The guys are great. The rabbis are like you know inspiring and deep. And I begin developing a relationship with Rabbi Yosef Lin, and I was feeling this incredible tension. I was really resonating with with yeshiva and Judaism, and yet here that that's not where my life was going. It was going to you know Iraq or Afghanistan, you know one of these places eventually. Right, and uh, he and I, Rabbi Lin and I, were sitting in one of the one of the classrooms in Machun Yaakov, which you know Machun Yaakov is is a sort of a, I don't know in the Balchuvo world a famous yeshiva for growing guys and connected to Machun Shlomo and Rabbi Gershenfeld. And I remember he and I were talking about things, and he said, you know, I'm telling you about why I want to do ROTC, why I want to do the army, and he said, you know, I just have a question, you know, will this make you happy, you know? I said, I think I said something like, you know, I'm going to make the best of it. And he said, you know, that's not a, such a great answer. <laughs> no. And then he asked, you know, is there a way for you to actually get out of ROTC? And my, literally my whole world crashed at that moment in the realization of what that might look like. Conversations with my father, with my mother, with ROTC, 
the fact that I had literally just signed this piece of paper a couple weeks before, and it was so overwhelming, and this became the new battle of figuring out, you know, whether I should, you know, leave or go, and I don't think I had a, a clear answer when I left the Israel trip. I got back for second semester of sophomore year, and received another scholarship, and I was feeling more cognitive dissonance, and there was a the chaplain, I think he was the unofficial chaplain of the of the ROTC, happened to be the OU rabbi, J-J-L-I-C. J-L-I-C. Yes, a wonderful man. So he was in the Israeli Defense Force, and so he and the, and the colonel of ROTC, they, they vibed very much. They always talk about whatever. He was in an interesting position because he was like the unofficial chaplain for ROTC, and yet he was also like, I started turning to him for Eitzah and guidance. And he was very delicately, I think, balancing his, like, his role within ROTC and also sort of, you have a guy here who's thinking about becoming religious, you know, this is some serious stuff over here. And uh, he had me read the book called The Alchemist. The key point that came out for me from that book was that you could live a life, a good life, and but if it's not aligned with the essence of who you are, there's a sort of a constitutive flaw in that. And I think that was the point. He, maybe I was meant to sort of garner that. Okay, you could live a fine military life, you know, but you're you're missing something really key. And that was beginning to have resonance inside of me. But it happened to be actually a conversation with my aunt and uncle, who I mentioned earlier, the religious ones, my religious ones, that I think just allowed me just to make a decision. And. My Uncle Morris asked me, you know, what would going to yeshiva do for you personally, professionally? And what would you know, the army do for you personally, professionally? And for some reason in that question, I, I just real, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm just not on the path that's going to get me there. I really attempted, I wanted to see if maybe I could become a chaplain in the army, go to Machanyako, and then become a chaplain. And then I tried to mesh all these worlds. And, and even the, the, to the credit of the, of the colonel there, he really went to bat. And he's like, I don't know, let me find out. And he actually went to speak to his higher ups and... Lo and behold, you know, nothing, it could be if I went to YU, you know, maybe they, they, they swing it, but because Machin is not a degree-giving program, they didn't really see why, you know, they would, they would do this. But you were going to have to pick one or the other. It didn't seem like you could have them both Correct. mesh together. Exactly. There came a point where it was not going to, there wasn't going to be a world where these two things could exist. And April Fool's Day, you know, the secular calendar, I, I go to ROTC and I, and then I'm like, you know, I, I do want to, break the contract do you want to leave and there was like sort of silence and then I think one of the one of the one of the officers said you know is this an April Fool's joke <laughs> <laughs> like I wish it was but it's not and I was like my, my so my silence was telling and uh, he's like okay let's get the paperwork and uh, now now what that means is when you when you break a contract like that you know they had given me money and I had to pay them back by the way you also mentioned that you had these conversations with your religious relatives, but I also would love to know what those conversations were like with your parents. Where are they pointing you in this decision? They, they said, you know, at the end of the day, we, want you, we do want you to be happy. Um, I think probably very relieved. I think my mom for sure relieved in terms of the ROTC um, and, and leaving the military, um, ultimately. Okay, so now you've come to the point of making this decision of which direction you're going to go. So does Judaism now start to accelerate rapidly now that you have this opportunity to learn deeper? No. <laughs> it does not. I would have um, thought like all the shackles are off now and now you can be all in. That's probably what the rabbis thought was going to happen when they were oh, sort of inching you towards this decision. Yeah. I had a belief that I, I really couldn't grow until, you know, maybe yeshiva or something. But I did, I had, I had certain resolutions. I was like, okay, I'm not going to date anymore and I'm going to go to yeshiva after college. 
I'm now a sophomore, you know, when I officially leave ROTC. And I still got about two years and some change. You know, a lot could happen in two years. You know, it's not looking, you know, for, for nine out of ten guys, it's going to take a lot of, you know, siyata deshmaya and some just raw grit to make this puppy happen. Right, but wait, what's happening then in those two years? Because you had talked about having a keep on and tzitzit and, like, maybe you're in on Shabbos, but now you have these two years left of college. So are you, are you using these last two years where you're sort of straddling both worlds again? Yeah, I start getting involved in Jewish leadership on campus in a more a significant way, although it was, it was like the conservative organization on campus. And I don't remember, I probably took the keeper off at this point, and since it's maybe I'm talking, I'm not, I, don't, I don't really remember, to be honest. I probably was working on keeping Shabbos. Ever since that conversation with the Kelvin Rebbe, there was an attempt to try to work on that. But I, I didn't have any sort of significant like learning per se. I was doing these different programs, I think, you know, as part of RJX, but I wasn't translating the inspiration fully into my like lived experience fully, I don't think. So my junior year, I actually had the opportunity to go on, on Mayor Poland, and then there was a program at the time called Jewish Student Leaders, and they saw so much, you know, hope in me that, that they were like, like, get this guy on both these programs, you know, <laughs> even though that's not the, tor- the normal thing. And They're all in on you at this point. They're like, they're like this guy is going to do it, you know. And I had a fantastic experience in Poland, very powerful, you know, and, and Jewish student leader. Like we were, we were, we had awesome speakers, Rabbi Tatz, you know, all these, all these, you know, incredible personalities that were educating us. When you have someone growing, they they say, don't go, don't get into a relationship. And uh, a really sort of key part of this whole story is when I ended up getting into a relationship. I met somebody my junior year, and a very, very wonderful person, who was not necessarily on the path of that I was on. Jewish, but, but not religious, you mean? Correct. And um, through the course of that relationship, she ultimately decided to, to actually pursue Judaism and to go explore. And, and you know, I think is, thank God, you know, very, you know, a very happy person today with her family and husband. And uh, at sort of the end of that process, I realized that I, I wasn't ready to be in a relationship. I wasn't in a place to grow with somebody else. And we ultimately decided to, to, to go our separate ways. That was the critical juncture for me, and that happened right before our senior year started. That's when I began to translate ideology or inspiration into action in a really significant way. Because um, I think the rabbis, you know, they were like, this guy's going to crumble. You know, he, nine out of ten guys coming out of a relationship, he has another year before yeshiva, get this guy to yeshiva now because it's not going to happen if he doesn't go. And there was a real conversation about maybe I should postpone my finishing senior year in terms of going to yeshiva early. I was like, you know, sort of entertaining that. And everyone, this really got my whole family. They're like, you are not going to go stop your school. You're like, you're a year away. Are you out of your mind? And I'm like, Pro- you know, probably, you know. <laughs> no, so I ended up staying and I started literally, I made a decision. I'm going to start praying three times a day. We got the Chabad kosher meal plan at, at school. And I had a very, very strong senior year where now I was like beginning to walk the walk and uh, getting involved more in like sort of the orthodox realm of, of Jewish leadership. And I write a whole, you know, I write a whole thesis my senior year on second generation Holocaust poetry, which was very, that was received very well. And it was just a generally energetically, you know, a year of just conviction, moving forward, driving forward. And is it feeling right to you, the way that you're, much more all in than you were these previous few years. It's starting to feel like you're heading in the right direction. Yeah, there was alignment, but thank God, you know, we, we pulled through and, 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 and it all worked out. 
Right. And so I would guess that uh, someone more suitable for where your religious journey is going comes into your life at some point. And we've had you talk about dating a non-Jewish person, then dating a Jewish person who wasn't religious. So what's the background of the special someone that now comes into your life to ultimately start a family with? When I was at Machun Yaakov, so I still wasn't sure about career, um, but I knew I wanted to be in helping, in the helping space. And, uh, and even by second year, I wasn't sure, you know, what we were going to do until a, a friend, a good friend of mine, a very special friend of mine, John Messing, whispered to me and said, I think you should be a nurse. And I took him seriously. And I spoke to Rabbi Lynn. He's like, well, I was also thinking about healthcare for you. And I was like, you know what, I, I'm an English guy. I, I can't do science or math, you know, <laughs> self-limiting beliefs. I took him seriously. When I, after yeshiva, I went back to New Jersey, Highland Park, I joined the Edison Chabura, did a whole year of prereqs for nursing school and got into the Rutgers Accelerated Nursing Program. And in between the end of my prereqs and starting nursing school, I went back to Israel for three months. And I was helping out on a program called J-Internship. I was, a, I was one of the Madrichim. And then the idea would be that I would be dating as well. Also, I had the great merit to be by Rabbi Barry Klein for a little bit during that time, who is a, runs a whole Chabura in Meisharim and has a very, very special place in my heart. And it was during this three months where there was a Shadchan, uh, Marissa Gross. It took, uh, I think, a couple of girls, but introduced my wife, Sarah, to me. And she and I dated in Eretz Yisrael together. Happened to be the Rabbi Klein, knew her, and was like, you know, at one point in the dating process, he was like, you're just not going to do better. You, you, you <laughs> be wise, you know. And, but where uh, was she from and what was her background? So she, she originally was from California was living in New York. She was working for a sort of a high-end like sales company in the city and also sort of, you know, got sort of exposed to Judaism. She had, I think her, her boss was, was religious at work. And I think she, you know, saw that there was like a certain like idealism in her and she started to grow slowly and got connected to Mayor Manhattan at the time and uh, did trips to Mayor Vision and things like that. And um, ultimately decided to spend a year in Eretz Yisrael and Madrash Rachel. And I, I sort of was crossing paths with her while she was, you know, sort of in her seminary experience. And uh, at this point, I, had, I, had, I was dating a year, you know, sort of in the in the frum way. And uh, there was something qualitatively, energetically different with Sarah that I was picking up on. We dated in Eretz Yisrael, and by the time that we were, I was about to leave, you know, I think we had decided that we wanted to actually, you know, move the line forward and. I went back to New Jersey, she met my family, went to California, met her family, and uh, actually started nursing school. She went back to Eretz Yisrael to finish up her time in seminary. And then Thursday, December 20th, 2020, you know, we got married. So now take me into the present. You mentioned just a couple years ago, you said 2020 is when you got married? Yeah. Okay, so now take me into the present as far as how you decided where to settle and what you're doing with your degree and, and what she's doing and maybe the idea of starting a family together. Yeah, sure. So one of my wonderful mentors, uh, Rabbi Ruvain Bilowitz, he started the Chabura for guys leaving yeshiva to come back to America, integrate, and, and have a good start. It's called the Edison Chabura. It's located in Edison, New Jersey. It was a really natural fit for me to come back here. And so because I was going to Rutgers Nursing School, you know, as well, you know, we got married and we, did, we put our roots here and continued to grow with, like, the Chabura. And the, as the Chabura was growing, it it didn't just address sort of the needs of the, of the single guys, but now there were guys that were dating and getting married and staying in the community. And, and Rabbi Bills expanded the program to be, you know, supportive of, of their growth as well. 
And so we sort of, you know, had a very natural framework to, to continue sort of, you know, growing Jewishly and personally. And um, it took me three years, the whole process of becoming a nurse. And then we, uh, when I graduated nursing school, we were thinking about starting a family. And, and our daughter, our first daughter, Hadassah Meir, was born sort of shortly after I finished uh, nursing school. And so now it was like, you know, preparing for the boards, new baby, growing family. Just a few things. It's like sort of amazing looking back at how we just sort of managed at that time. And I soon after had the opportunity to work for a hospital and they brought me on to their drug and alcohol detox unit. And, uh, and so that's where I, I've basically been working for the past more, more than a year and a half at this mm-hmm. point. I don't hold back that I'm Jewish at work at all. Sits us out. You know, we were also blessed, you know, relatively six months ago with, with the birth of our second daughter. And so it's just been this, you know, incredible blend of, you know, growing family. My wife left her job to work as a Mecca Revis for Rutgers Jewish Experience. So Brevin There might be people who, don't, who are listening to this who aren't familiar with that term. So just spell that out in English for yeah, us. Yeah, sure. She's, she's a Jewish educator for the organization that McCarved me. So Rebbe Goldberg, who is, you know, I've known for, you know, probably 10 years at this point, is her boss. <laughs> That's what she does. Okay, so let me ask you one last question before we close the interview, because I can hear clearly two themes. One, that you're someone who likes to grow and likes to help people. But secondly, that your journey is very methodical. It's not like rash, quick decisions, like things unfold at the pace that they're supposed to. So, so given what I've learned about you and the themes that came through the interview, what's next on your list as your family continues to grow? What are you hoping to accomplish as a couple in the next, say, three to five years? I think the newest project for me is I, I'm going part-time at my nursing job, and I opened up a, a coaching practice. I call it Insight and Performance Coaching. What gives me life force is helping people tap into their potential to think bigger than they ever thought is possible. I, I want to take all the experiences that I've been blessed to have, all the strengths that, uh, that God has put inside of me, to serve people as powerfully as I can and helping people overcome fears and self-limiting beliefs and tap into their unique space. We want to be of service to the Jewish people and we want to be of service to humanity and uh, to take the gift that Hashem has given us and to reveal as much light as we possibly can with those that we have the opportunity to be in, you know, to be of service with. That is a beautiful, beautiful sentence to end on. So, Aaron, I want to thank you so much for sharing your inspirational story and for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks, Jeff. I love being here. Thank you so much. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T A C. HLISmedia.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.